and they keep going, right? And they ask why, 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 why? And eventually you get to some kind of answer you have to say like, well, that's the way God made it, right? We kind of run out of answers at some point. But when they reach that age of four years old or thereabouts, they ask that question, why? Because they want to understand, they want to learn. Um, tonight, we're going to answer some why questions about a couple of books in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking, uh, starting tonight and actually probably for a lot of weeks, um, at the books of First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings. So no need to rush and turn there just yet. We've got a, uh, several things to cover. And I admit, uh, tonight we're, we're not actually going to dive into 1 Kings much, uh, if at all, because I wanted to cover a lot of background to set up the next few weeks. So, uh, a few weeks ago we started on James, we had an introductory message, so this is our introductory message for First and Second Kings. So, um, we'll be covering a, a lot of the background information. So, to get us started, um, the first thing I thought we should talk about is the name. Right? We call the books First and Second Kings. But did you know that originally they were one book? And uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, that was made uh, around, I think around 200 BC, I might be off on the date, but it was made a long time ago. Uh, the Septuagint actually made 1st and 2nd Samuel, the, the two books that come before 1st and 2nd Kings in our Bible, they made that to be 1st and 2nd Kings. And then the books we're going to be looking at, they called the 3rd and 4th Kings. Now, there's some logical reasons why that was the case, because 1st um, Samuel is where Saul, the first king, is made to be king in chapter 9, I believe, 9 or 10 there. 9, 10, or 11. Yeah, 11 he fights. Yeah, he's already king at that point. So in 1 Samuel, we see king, king Saul put into place. So that makes some sense because there is a close relationship between 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. So it's had various names throughout the years, but we, we go by 1 and 2 Kings. So... That's the books we're going to be looking at, the ones that come after First and Second Samuel. Um, in addition to the name, I thought we should talk about the author and sources uh, kind of briefly because we don't really know for sure who wrote the book of First and Second Kings. All right, so I'm just going to tell you this is a little speculation, so this isn't uh, um, for sure because it's not revealed to us, and we do have to be careful when things aren't revealed to uh, uh, rely on that. So there's a lot of evidence that suggests historically that the prophet Jeremiah may have had a role in the book of 1st and 2nd Kings. Um, even if it wasn't Jeremiah, it seems to have a strong influence from the prophets. And uh, there's a large section of these two books that are focused on the prophets, and even they take center stage over the kings described in these two books. So um, while we're not sure if it's Jeremiah, it probably was a prophet who was a contemporary with Jeremiah, someone who lived around the same time, or slightly thereafter. The, the one concern with Jeremiah as the answer is, is the time it would have been written, Jeremiah might have died about what seems like the best time. 
though it's close. So we don't know for sure, but probably uh, a prophet or somebody like Jeremiah, um, or perhaps because God has used, in, like in the book of Proverbs, multiple people to compile things together, um, it could have been uh, somebody maybe finished a part of it that Jeremiah had done. We don't know for sure, though. So um, I wanted to mention, though, there's a few different sources mentioned in the book. So I don't, um, we understand the scriptures to be inspired by God. That is, God worked in the authors to record his words, what he wanted said, using their personalities so that they were writing and speaking uh, they were writing things um, in keeping with their understanding of the language and, and their understanding of things, um, but yet the very words that God wanted written. All right? But even though they wrote this way and God inspired them to write, they still use sources. We see that in the book of Luke and the book of Acts very clearly in the New Testament. Luke talks about how he gathered much resources in his writings. He, he did a lot of research about the life of Christ to write what he wrote. And we see in the book of First and Second Kings, the author mentions several different documents. So one of those is the book of the Acts of Solomon. That's mentioned specifically towards the end of what he says about Solomon. He talks about these documents, the, the books that contain the Acts of Solomon. Um, he also mentions some uh, records of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. I wouldn't bother writing those references down if you are because they're mentioned a lot of places. I just included a few examples. Um, but these are not to be mistaken with the book of Chronicles or the book of Kings. Um, because when you read it in these passages, it often uses the word chronicles. But it's not to be understood as what we have as First and Second Chronicles. It's basically just record of kings. So the kings had records of things that happened in the kingdom. And the author of these books is saying that he used those resources to get some of this data. And he, and he says many times, if you want to read more about this stuff, I'm not going to keep going. You could see what's written in those books. Um, so he used these sources. In fact, uh, a funny little story about this is um, these are, you know, these records are probably just very boring, uh, similar to what government documents might be to us today. Well, we see that in Esther. In Esther chapter 6, King Ahasuerus is having trouble sleeping. And he, because he's having trouble sleeping, what does he ask for? He asks for these records of the kings to be brought and read to him so that he can fall asleep. So this is the kind of boring uh, material that we would, we would uh, think of it. Um, but it was important research for the person who wrote this book. He used those resources. So inspired, yes. God's words, yes. But he used... Uh, human instruments to record his words as he intended. And some of the preparation for that was them doing research, using those kind of resources. All right. Um, this, again, I put a question mark because it's uh, a little bit of uncertainty. Um, there's uh, this passage here in 2 Kings has a lot of similarity to what's written in Isaiah 36 and 39. And we see at the end of the book of Kings, 2 Kings, Isaiah's mentioned uh, a few times. Um, so 
it's hard to know. Was the book of Isaiah used for 2 Kings? We don't know for sure. Um, or vice versa. It's not clear, but it's a possibility there's similarity. Same thing with Jeremiah. There's a similarity in the text there between, and, and I think that's part of what fosters the idea that Jeremiah may be the author of 2 Kings, is um, this borrowed language here in those two books. All right? But um, those are the sources and the, uh, the author we're not exactly sure about. So please don't leave tonight saying, uh, Pastor Rob said, uh, Jeremiah wrote uh, Ferns and Kings. Um, don't know that for sure. All right? So what kind of books are these? What, what, what's the genre? What's, what's the writing about? What style? Well, it's history. It's history. So I'm, I'm glad to see... We're uh, a good 15 minutes into the discussion of it, and you're still awake. Um, normally with discussion of history, it's kind of a topic not a lot of people like. I admit, though, the older that I get, the more I enjoy history. Um, my, my parents used to take me uh, down to uh, Henry Ford Village and you know Henry F the museum and stuff down there. Absolutely hated it. Absolutely hated it. Couldn't stand it. Well, it was, I, mean, th I think it was a few years ago. My wife and I went, and uh, actually we, we actually got engaged there. Um, but uh, now that I'm older and I understand some history a little better, I've, I've grown to appreciate it. But um, these books are history. So they record history. But it's important to understand the author's purpose isn't just to record everything that happened during a time frame. In fact, um, date is actually our next topic here that I'm going to bring up. But these two books cover a span of 400 years. 400 years. So the total word count in these two books is around 50,000. So I don't know if you're like me, I'm like, oh, 50,000, what, what does that compare to? Well, so let's take a couple popular books. Are you familiar with the, uh, the Hobbit? The Hobbit. How many words do you think are in the, the, the Hobbit? 20,000? 20, Going once? Uh, 200,000? Anyone else? All right. Well, as my source, which was just one, I did a quick Google, but uh, Google suggested the Hobbit was 95,000 words. Now the, uh, the, I wasn't clear, the, the Two Towers, I think it said, was about 200,000 words. Um, and the Fellowship's bigger than that one, isn't it? I think that was higher. So if you think about it, 400 years covered in 50,000, which is about half of what you would find in The Hobbit, that's not actually very much. So... In order to record 400 years of history, you're not recording everything that happened. You're being very selective. And that's what we'll find as we look at the book of Kings. The author is very selective. He is careful about what he includes, and his motive isn't just to provide all these details of history. His motive is to provide uh, the purpose to fulfill the purposes of why he's writing, which is we're going to say more about, but he's trying to explain what happened to the nation of Israel. They're God's chosen people. 
They had a king and a kingdom, and in the time of Solomon, it was a great kingdom. And yet, at the time of the writing of the books, they're in exile. They've, their, their temple has been destroyed. And they're in exile, so they're asking, like we talked about those four-year-olds, why? Why did this happen? What happened? So that's one of the purposes of why he's writing this book. So he's very selective in what he chooses to record. In fact, secular historians will have some information about some of these kings, and they'll have lots and lots of things. And sometimes this author, the author of the book of First and Second Kings, will just have a paragraph or something. Because his purpose isn't to show how the government operated and all the things it did. He's trying to fulfill the purpose that he's after. All right, so it's a book of history. All right, so date and time span. We kind of talked about some of these pieces already, but let's, let's put it together. So from a date perspective, and please understand these are rough estimates. Um, there's some data to support these. Um, but there might be a, a, little, um, a little flex, plus or minus, on, on the ends and beginning. But um, we're estimating the time span covered. So what does the content cover in First and Second Kings? It's about 400 years, starting around 970 B.C. with the reign of Solomon. Basically, he's taking over for da his, his dad, David. And he reigns, and then we get all the way down... And uh, Zedekiah there at the end is captured by the king of Babylon, and uh, they go into exile. And then there's a little note, a little tiny note at the end about Jehoiakim um, being able to sit with the king of Babylon, and, uh, which is a glimmer of hope that the line of David is being preserved, even though the kingdom has been destroyed. All right? So that's roughly the time frame. If you want to think about it from king to king, it's basically it starts with David. And uh, Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. We'll look at David and uh, how it gets transferred over to Solomon. And uh, it goes all the way to Zedekiah, as we mentioned, who gets then captured by the Babylonians. Um, and um, if you want to look at it from prophet to prophet, which is interesting because the role of the prophets are very significant in these books. So we start off with the prophet Nathan. Um, who advised David, and, um, uh, and then we go down to uh, the prophet Isaiah there at the end of the book, all right? So we have, I mentioned the release of Jehoiakim, so trying to think about when was the book actually written then, because it has to cover these two spans. So it wasn't written from the time of Solomon until the end. It was somebody at the end using those resources like we talked about to fill in the data from the earlier periods where he wasn't alive. Um, and we know Jehoiakim was released, and I believe we have Babylonian record that actually backs up this number. So it's 561 B.C., so it must have been written after that. But we also have records that back up the, uh, the, the decree that Israel can return to their homeland um, in 538 B.C. So it had to be written between those two things, all right? So we're estimating somewhere between 560 and 550 B.C. It was when these books would have been written. All right. So I want to cover another concept to help us fit this book in. Um, it's important as believers in Jesus Christ to understand how things fit together. And so... 
there is this early theme that God develops in the Old Testament that continues to be built up throughout the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. We know the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And that starts really as early as uh, uh, Genesis 3.15, where it talks there about the seed of the woman. Uh, the seed of the woman, Eve's seed. Significant that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. He was not a descendant of Joseph. He was born of the woman via the Holy Spirit. So we see all, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, a foreshadowing of this coming Messiah. We also see uh, in Genesis 12, God says with Abraham, gives him promises of land and that his descendants would be a great people. And he says specifically, which points to Christ, that his through his seed, all nations will be blessed. That is a reference to Christ, as Paul makes very clear in the New Testament. All right, so we see this theme throughout Genesis, and, and we see it continued in Deuteronomy, where Moses says to his people, it's one, one little verse there where Moses says, God is going to raise up after me a prophet. And the prophet he's speaking of is Jesus Christ. And that is made extremely clear by Stephen. If you remember in the New Testament, he's confronted by the Sanhedrin and he walks them through how Israel rejected Moses at his first appearing. So has Israel rejected Christ at his first appearing. So he is the fulfillment of that prophet that Moses speaks of in Deuteronomy 18.15. So there is this purposeful building up an expectation of a coming Messiah. We also see um, in the book of Judges, we see um, these people that God used to literally judge. I know if you, look, if you read the book of Judges, most of what you see is these people going around and wiping out people, right? Or the, the children of Israel sin. And then God sends a deliverer who helps them wipe out the bad guys that are oppressing them, right? But a little more subtle, if you understand what actually the judges did beyond that, they also had a role in judging or helping people make decisions according to what the law said. They helped judge matters in Israel. There was an administrative role to those judges as well. And really the kings is that same kind of role, like a judge, except that it's universal for the whole kingdom. So we see some buildup and foreshadowing there. We see in First and Second Samuel, as we mentioned, chapter 9, we see uh, Saul is established as the, king, the first king of Israel. And then David, a, a man after God's own heart, God chooses to be the next king to follow Saul. And, and, uh, and so... That's where we find First and Second Kings is coming after these two books. All right, so let's look then at some of the purposes and themes, some of the whys, why this book was written. Well, we already talked about one of them, and it is helping the people of Judah understand why they're in exile. 
I mean, if you think about it and you look at all of the history of Israel, the, uh, all the way back to Genesis 12 where God has chosen Abraham and they are his people, they had a kingdom, they had a temple where they worshiped God, where he made his presence, uh, they experienced the presence of God. God blessed, God grew that kingdom. And you see all the way up in chapter 11 how great the influence of uh, Solomon and, his, and the kingdom of Israel was at that time. The people in Judah are saying, what about these promises that God's made to our nation? Why are we here? Well, the book addresses that. It's because of Israel's unfaithfulness that they're there. They committed idolatry. Um, in Deuteronomy, it talks about the rules for a king and what he's supposed to do. And Solomon broke virtually every one of them, and it just continued on from there. So there's a great history, not great in the sense of good, there's a, a lot of history is what I meant by great there. There's a lot of history that's very bad in what the kings did in leading the nation into idolatry. And it, and it exposes that. And it gets so bad that God sends prophets because the kings are so corrupt that the prophets have to re perpetually rebuke and challenge the kings because they are completely off the rails. So we see this as a major purpose. We see the book tells us about God's judgment on Israel and Judah because of their unfaithfulness. However, the book also demonstrates God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's sin. So the nation of Israel has been sinful, they've done wrong, and yet God's still faithful, and he is uh, going to preserve the line of David. That's how the book closes. It is, a, it is an indication that God is preserving the line of David so that there will be someday the Messiah, the coming king that they're waiting for, that prophet that they're waiting for, according to Deuteronomy 18.15. It's going to be preserved. God is still faithful, even though his people were not. Um, we also see a huge role for the prophets in this book. There's a huge section from 17 all the way into the book of 2 Kings where the prophets are like the main focus. They're not even focused on the kings because of uh, how wicked they were. And God was working through the prophets. We, we see, as I said, a glimmer of hope at the end of the book for God preserving the line of David and... I think there's also this indication in the book that none of these men who were the king of Israel were that Messiah that they're waiting for. So therefore, they need to anticipate the coming of that Messiah still. While they're in exile, they need to look forward to the day when God would bring that Messiah because none of them that had already served as king were a fulfillment of that promise. All right? So, a lot of detail, and you're, you're still mostly awake. That's good. I want to briefly lay out the big picture for you in how the book is broken down. At least this is how I understand it. Um, there is, in the first 11 chapters, there's United Kingdom. So this is uh, David takes over for Solomon, and he reigns... Uh, and, until we get to uh, chapter 11 and we see his downfall exposed there, and then it gets handed over to Rehoboam, who we talked about this morning. 
and Rehoboam uh, <laughs> is uh, not willing to yield and uh, lower the taxes as people are, are and the burdens that people are demanding. But it was providential in God's design that there would be this division because of the sin of Solomon. And so the kingdom is divided. So basically we have, interestingly, there's 12 tribes in Israel, right? But it says 10 of them go with the north, and one of them stays with the south. So what happened to that other one? What's that missing tribe? What? It was absorbed? Which one? Which direction? Yep, the tribe of Benjamin. Why, why in a way, does uh, Benjamin get treated as uh, that it doesn't exist? They almost didn't exist. What's that? They almost didn't exist. They almost didn't exist because the end of the book of Judges, right? There was a hideous sin uh, in the book of Judges that talks about happening in the tribe of Benjamin, and the children of Israel went up before the Lord to ask what they should do about it, and God said, go up against Benjamin because they wouldn't give up the men who did this wicked thing. So they fought, and there were so many men killed in Benjamin that they were practically wiped out. So um, that's why you see it treated. So in, in reality, Benjamin does get included in the southern kingdom. All right. So they're a part of it, and northern is the ten others. All right. So there's this divided kingdom. Those chapters there are about the split. As I mentioned, 1 Kings 17 to chapter 8 and the 2 Kings is, is largely focused on the prophets and their role in correcting or rebuking the kings that are uh, committing idolatry or apostasy. Um, and we see the decline there towards the exile um, in 2 Kings 9 to 17, and then we see then the fall of the kingdom at the end of the book of 2 Kings. So that's the real big overview picture. Um, now, uh, my wife and I are praying for you guys to find your next pastor. Given how big these books are, I'm thinking we'll probably be gone be before I finish, all right? Um, <laughs> but it'll take us a while. But we'll take big sections together. We'll, we'll, uh, the plan is next week, Lord willing, start the first chapter of First Kings, and uh, we'll work through it, and we'll skip some stuff. We're not going to necessarily read out loud every single verse. It'll take us a long time to do that, but um, we'll get through it. But I think it'll be an encouragement and blessing, and it's already been uh, an encouragement to me as I've started to look ahead at what we're going to do. So that's the big picture. A couple of background texts I want to take you now through where we can dig into the scriptures for the 15 or so minutes we have left, all right? So I want to walk you through, actually I'm going to walk you through two real quick without looking there, and then we'll look at the third one to finish up this evening, all right? So our first one is 1 Samuel chapter 8. All right, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, this is where the prophet Samuel is, is the primary prophet that God is using. Um, Samuel is one of those unique people because he is, the last of the judges, if you will. Um, although his sons try to take over and they're corrupt and that's part of what the problem is, the, the leaders of Israel, the elders of Israel, say, um, are unhappy because Samuel's old and his children seem to be corrupt. So they're done with the judges thing. They, they don't want to do that anymore. 
They want a king. So basically the people of Israel say to Samuel, give us a king. And uh, that's basically how this starts in the chapter, the corruption of his sons. They ask for a king. And what you see is Samuel is upset. Samuel's upset about this request. Why, why was he upset? It's not, it, was, it was not, uh, I mean, providentially, God, God sovereignly determined that's what was going to happen, but they, they didn't want it for the right reasons. One of the motives they said was, we want to be like the other nations and have a king like they have, exactly. I think there was one other thing, and it was really, God was their king. God was their ruler. Right. Samuel. Yep. Exactly right. So they were, they were rejecting God's leadership over them. That was really their problem. And they wanted to be like the other nations. So that was upsetting to Samuel. But the Lord basically allows this, even though their motives were wrong. And it wasn't the time yet for that uh, promised king to come. Um, but uh, God allows it and gives them some warnings. Very interesting. He warns them and says, you get a king and he's going to come and take your best fields. He's going to take your sons and your daughters to serve uh, his needs. And they're like, nah, no, we want a king. They don't want to listen at all. It's interesting if you think about it. God is their ruler. He's invincible. He can never be defeated, right? You get a human king, he can be defeated. He can be sinful. God's holy and perfectly righteous, never makes a mistake, knows everything. But they want to replace God's role with a human role who will be sinful, who will take advantage of them, will uh, um, be wicked and turn their hearts away from God. Um, but they're rejecting God, and uh, God allows this. Um, and they don't listen to the warning, and they basically go ahead and do what he said and God picks out Saul who physically had a lot of the desirable characteristics you would think would make a good king but if you know your, your first Samuel and I, and I believe uh, Pastor Elwert had uh, spent a lot of time in uh, first and second Samuel recently you know that Saul wasn't a good king um, even though he had good physical characteristics all right now, one other background text before we go to Deuteronomy. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 17, actually. But before we do that, um, one more text, and that's 2 Samuel 7. This one's significant because this is where God says to David the, the promises that are ultimately meant for the messianic king who's coming later. And God says to David... I will give you, basically he says here, um, this all happened because uh, uh, the events that led up to this were um, David had wanted to build a temple for God. He, um, of all the faults that David had, he was, we never see him as an idolater. He, he did sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah, her husband, killed, um, and that was a grievous sin. But he repented of that, as we read in Psalm 51. What a, uh, a, a, an excellent example of repentance that was. And we essentially see David be 
a changed man after that, and he never was an idolater like the other kings, most of the other kings were. Um, so he's an example. But David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, but God said, your hands are bloody. You've shed much blood, so I don't want you to build the temple. I'm going to have your son build it. And he was referring to Solomon. Um, and so as a response to that, though, God has the prophet Nathan go and give David this message. Um, and he tells him in this passage that your house and kingdom shall endure forever. So in other words, nobody is going to completely wipe out your descendants. Um, there's many places in the kings where we see evil kings take over for other evil kings and they totally wipe out the family of the previous king. But that wouldn't happen to David. God was going to preserve his line and he also makes it clear that his throne would be established forever. And again, the exiles would look at this and say, is God not going to do this after all? But it hadn't been fulfilled in Christ yet. They had to look forward to it. But God makes this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David. All right, so they were to look forward to the Messianic king who would fulfill the promises made to Abraham uh, in Genesis 12. All right, so let's look. we got about 10 minutes. Let's look at Deuteronomy 17 because Deuteronomy 17 sets up the rules for a king. So what we're going to see throughout the book as we read it is we're going to see how these kings fail to meet these rules. They, they fall short of what God has spelled out here in Deuteronomy 17. So, Deuteronomy 17 and verse 14, uh, we'll start there. It says, When you enter the land with the, which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set up a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not of your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. In verse 18. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So, a lot there. In just a few minutes we'll cover what he says there. First of all, I want to point out to you, God says the right to choose who is going to be that king is still God's choice. Even though they are going to rebel and choose to have a king and reject God as their king, He's saying it's his choice who's going to be that king. We see that happen with Saul. God chose Saul to be their first king. 
we see that God chooses David. When Saul has gone off the rails, we see how God sends Samuel to anoint David to be that next king. It's actually inter interesting, the timing there in Samuel. He anoints him in 16 uh, to be the next king, and then we see in 17, that's when he fights and defeats Goliath. An evidence that the Spirit of God was already at work in David, anointing him to be the next king. However, Saul lived a long time um, after that, and David had to run for his life because Saul eventually figured it out and was uh, trying to kill David. Because that's what human kings trying to preserve their human authority do. They want to keep their power. They don't want to give it up. And Saul didn't want to give up his power. He didn't want all of his descendants wiped out. Um, like typically happens with kingdom takeovers in a different family. So, uh, but God is reserving the right to choose. God is still ultimately in control, and they needed to recognize that, even with a human king. Um, we also see he's not going to multiply. There's a few things he says not to multiply here. He's not to multiply gold and silver for himself. He's not to multiply horses. It, it says horses. Why? Why horses? What's wrong with taking a nice little horse ride? My, my wife, in fact, uh, just talked to a lady at a wedding yesterday who loves to ride horses, and uh, it's one of her favorite things to do. She talked for minutes and minutes and minutes about horses. What's wrong with horses? Bill, I think you're going to... Uh, horses used for war. That's right. That's right. Back in their day, horses were an instrument of warfare. So if they're multiplying horses, what they're doing is they're building up their army, they're trusting in their own strength, and therefore, they're not trusting in the Lord to give them the victory. So he's telling them not to amass great war instruments. They need to trust him. So it's not, technically, it's not only horses, but that was symbolic of warfare machinery. All right? So they weren't to trust in horses. All right? He's not to multiply horses. He's also not to multiply silver and gold. We know, it's obvious, it's taught all throughout Scripture, money money has, can have a great influence over our behavior and capture our heart and draw us away from the Lord, right? Jesus says you can't serve money and God. God has to be master, not your money, and it's a danger. So God's saying to be careful not to multiply um, your... your uh, your silver and gold, because those will be the things you trust in. Doesn't mean we can't invest and make uh, investments and have retirement fund. That's not what God's talking about. The point is kings were to trust God, and he would provide and take care of the nation. It also says he's not to multiply wives. I mean, Solomon is the clear, obvious example right here, right? You, We read the first first 10 chapters of first kings and we say wow solomon is great a great leader so wise and yet we see it comes unglued and one of the foundational wrongs in his life was he disobeyed this commandment of multiplying wives and many of the women that he married were women from foreign countries that worshipped foreign gods, so he gave in to their pressures and worshipped their gods too. And it drew his heart away. 
So it's a warning here from God on what the standard should be, and Solomon, we see, broke that, as would, would many others, such as uh, Ahab is a, another classic example. Um, but uh, they're not to multiply wives. They're not to multiply wives. They're also not to return to Egypt. God had brought them out of Egypt, and they were not to go back. Remember one of the, the great sins in the wilderness as they're leaving, as the people are complaining, saying, why did we ever leave? Very, very wicked. God had brought them out through many wonders and signs, powerful works. They were not to go back. They were to uh, stay and uh, serve the Lord in Israel, not go back. Um, we also see um, an important mention about the Scriptures. God says the king is to have his own copy of the Scriptures. Now, in our day and age, we don't, we don't necessarily appreciate the significance of that. How many, I, I, you don't have to answer out loud because we all have different answers, but it'll be a similar concept. How many copies of the Scriptures do you have? How many copies of the Scriptures do you own? I mean, on my phone alone, I can have hundreds of copies of the Scripture. But in that day, before the Gutenberg Press, there was not an easy way to have the Scriptures in everybody's home. So it was a very expensive thing, very select um, people. And, but the king, as the king, had the resources and means to have it. And God's saying it was important for the king to have it but not just to have it. It's not like, um, it's maybe a thing that's not as popular nowadays, but a thing of the past, uh, to have a big family Bible, right, on display in your house. That's not the idea. It's not to be just this big family Bible sitting next to the throne. The idea is he's to read it. He's to understand it. He's to know what it says, because as king, he is to enforce what God has said. And he is to punish those that disobey what God had said. So he needs to understand it to be able to do his job correctly. It's a necessity. Which is really ironic when we read some of the kings and, they, and we get towards the end of the book and they have this huge discovery and say, look what I found. I found this copy of God's word. It's like, what do you mean? You should have all had it. But there's a long period where they don't. They were disobeying this very critical instruction. And it was that they were to be intimately acquainted with it so they could obey it. And that we're going to see, Lord willing, as we go through the book of Kings, however far we're able to get, and as long as we have with you, um, we'll see the kings of Israel disobey these commandments here in Deuteronomy 17. And we'll see how God has to bring about the punishment of his people because of their idolatry and apostasy. Uh, but in spite of all that, the things we need to remember as we look at that is God is still faithful. And that's a good lesson for us today too. As wicked as our nation gets, God is still faithful. The same God who ruled back then is ruling and in control today too. He hasn't yet fulfilled everything he's promised. We too wait for the coming of Christ, but not the first time. 
we're waiting for his second coming so that we'll be with him forever and that he will establish his kingdom and fulfill the promises yet unfulfilled that we look forward to and like the song the hallelujah chorus we'll we'll sing and celebrate that the lord of lords is king on the earth that'll be a great time of rejoicing and that is what we too should be looking forward to and jesus told us we should be praying for that you remember that little part of the lord's prayer thy kingdom come that's what he's talking about we should be looking forward to that and praying for that even though we see all these human kings fail we wait for our lord jesus to return to be the king on the earth that's what we should pray for that's what we should hope for let's pray heavenly father we thank you we thank you that you are faithful we we are sinners saved by grace and it is only by your goodness we're able to do anything right and you're working in our lives we thank you that you are merciful we look forward to the day. We, we pray that you would continue to increase our desire to see the coming of our Lord, our, our uh, spending eternity with you, and, and eventually to see the Lord Jesus ruling on the earth, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to that. Help our hearts to continue to long for that and live in light of that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.